0: Welcome to the Stories Told Podcast. This is Episode 46, Writing Science in Fiction. This is the Stories Told Podcast. Two authors talking about stories in movies, TV, and of course, books.
1: I'm Michael Grayford. I write action-adventure stories in fantasy and sci-fi worlds sometimes for younger readers and sometimes for adults. And I try to always inject at least a little bit of humor.
0: And I am author E.W. Barnes, and I write action-adventure time travel novels and space opera science fiction. Thousands of years, thousands of worlds, but be forewarned. Beyond here, there will be spoilers. Are you ready for the adventure? Let's begin. Welcome back to the Stories Told podcast. I'm author E.W. Barnes, and with me is author Michael Grayford. And today we have the pleasure of interviewing author J.L. Birchwood and talking about her book, The Blood Strain Agenda. Welcome, Jenny. How are you? I'm great. Thanks a lot for having me. It's our pleasure. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to authorness, authorhood.
2: Sure. So um, I'm a scientist and weekend novelist who lives on the East Coast. I started writing fiction approximately three years ago in mid 2020. And as of now, I've published seven books, including a four part medical techno thriller series of which the Bloodstrain Agenda is the first book. And currently I'm working on a near future dystopian trilogy. Uh, I'm a voracious consumer of news and research, so my work can best be described as contemporary, sort of ripped from the headlines content, but hopefully with characters that people enjoy and will become invested in.
0: So let's talk a little bit more about the strain agenda. I'm going to go ahead and read the synopsis from the back of the book. Burgeoning young scientist Margot thought she had finally found happiness with her new husband Ryan, a microbiologist running a successful research laboratory. After several scientists die under suspicious circumstances, Ryan becomes obsessed with their murders, convinced the government is responsible. When a bioterrorist attack grips the nation, killing thousands of innocent civilians, Ryan becomes more isolated and secretive. Drawing suspicion from everyone, including Margot, as a government agent closes in on Ryan, Margot races to find the proof of his innocence, all the while exposing secrets that will shatter her happy home and the lives of everyone she cares about. This was a really tense and exciting read. <laughs> what do you? What did you think, Mike?
1: Yeah, I was going to say the same, same thing. I, I had a lot of fun reading this and. It definitely, like, the tension really ramps up as you go along and then just has a great wrap-up at the end. Yeah, very intense. I liked it. I have a question for you, Jenny. Did you have a specific goal in mind when you were creating this story, when you came up with the idea?
2: Sure. So my one of my primary goals was actually to reflect people like me in storytelling um, starting in 2001 more women have been getting um, degrees, including advanced degrees, in the sciences than men. And so, it, but we're still, even though we're still a small group, we're a growing group of people. And so my first thought was to sort of create a character that sort of represents me and other female scientists and try and show them as sort of competent and with a fun story and give them something to do in the action and suspense realm. So that was one of my primary goals. Uh, When I began writing The Bloodstrain Agenda, it was August of 2020, and so I was trapped at home, much like everybody else, during COVID. And I had dabbled in creative writing in my youth, so it seemed like a good opportunity to sort of test myself and see if I could actually write fiction and long-form fiction at that. So... Um, The goal for me in crafting the books in the Journal of the Sacrificial Scientist was sort of to create an engaging plot that incorporates real science coupled with believable, relatable characters that make you care about them. I took it as a personal challenge to mix current events into a suspense novel full of twists and turns that would keep readers turning pages. But I also recently read both Gone Girl and The Girl on the Train, two books with sort of unique structure and point of view, and I sort of wanted to try and experiment with that myself. At the time, I had no intention of writing a four book series, but I fell in love with the characters and the story just flowed. After the Bloodstrain Agenda dropped, I published a book every four months until the series was completed in August of 2022. Wow.
0: Every four months. That's awesome. Amazing.
1: Yeah, that's impressive. For your first book, (laughs) this is well done. This is really good. Uh, And I'm curious to see how this progresses. I've only read the first book so far, so I want to see how it goes in the next uh, three
0: and I, I have to agree. This is a, a compelling story, and it's very, again, like I said at the beginning, very tense, very engaging, sort of thriller. I mean, it's a thriller, and you're 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 needing to keep going to find out what's going to happen next and what's going on and get to the to the end of the mystery. And and I really enjoyed that. So I was curious as to what your method was for developing the plot of the story.
2: Sure. So. As we all remember, during COVID, there was a lot of conspiracy theories floating around about the origins of COVID. And literally one morning, I kind of awoke with the fiction writer's mantra, quote-unquote, what if, sort of buzzing around right in my brain. So what if a nationwide outbreak was really a cover for a terrorist attack? as a professional microbiologist myself i of course know a lot about both you know bad critters bad organisms bad microbes that might cause such an outbreak and also i'm pretty fluent in the public health response As a novice fiction writer, however, I had to sort of balance the science with the protagonist's emotions, like how could I describe the laboratory environment, the isolation of this mutant bacteria and its deployment as a weapon without losing the audience who just wants a fun story about Margot, the magnificent microbiologist. And funnily enough, COVID-19 actually provided me with just just the right sort of moment to write this story. Suddenly, everyone had heard of things like transmissibility or antigen tests or PCR tests. And while they might not know intimately the chemistry of PCR or exactly how the analysis works, they certainly understood that PCR tests were used to detect viral DNA and antigen tests were similar in design to home pregnancy tests. Everyone had been exposed to these concepts by now. Keen observers of the news also news that scientists had the capability to sequence the entire genome of the virus and that COVID-19 mutated over time, creating the variants we know as Alpha and Omicron and things like that. The population was also witnessing the public health response to the outbreak in real time. On the news, they saw the CDC collecting samples to track the spread of the virus. They saw hospitals being overwhelmed with patients. They saw how um, nurses and things like that were sort of dealing with the crush of of, um, the the death and the destruction wrought by COVID-19. So for this book, Describing the Science was actually became fairly straightforward. Um, And although the blood strain is a fictional bacteria, there are enough real elements to hopefully give the reader a clear picture of the illness and sort of the paranoia that swept the country and how the terrorists were motivated to launch such an attack. So it really was sort of a... Kind of a rut. The moment that made me think to do it was also be the moment that this was going to be an accessible story for the general public because they were watching all of this on the news while they're, you know, at the same time that they could be potentially reading the book. So,
0: well, and I appreciated, you know, I saw that you did that, and I recognized your background in the discussion of the science, but I think you did a brilliant job. Allowing the story and the characters to sort of push that down a little bit into a sort of a sub level that was part of the overall world that you created and let the characters do the work of the story, which is, you know, an important thing as a writer. I was actually very impressed with your framing of sort of the political and terrorism issues really well. Because it could have been easy to rely on the science to do that for you, but you didn't. You uh, really pulled in very believable and recognizable behavior of people who have agendas. And it was, I, I thought it was really well done. Thank you.
1: Uh, I, uh, a friend who is a microbiologist, and when they start talking about their work and the details, I just glaze over <laughs> it's just you know it's like there's so, there's so much knowledge there and i haven't even the beginning understanding of biological concepts so i think you did a great job of just using that to propel your story and dropping enough hints to make it feel real without bogging us down with the science you you remembered the most important thing just keep us with the characters and keep us with the story and keep that going uh yeah i thought you did a great job i think uh i think you did a good job with the voice of the story too it feels very authentic the characters feel very real um and you put a lot of good specific details in there with the characters and the setting and, and the place all this kind of stuff without again without bogging us down without it being too much But it really grounds us and makes the story feel real. I found myself really rooting for the hero. So what was your method for developing your characters in this story?
2: Sure. Thanks, Mike. Um, Since the book was written contemporaneously with the pandemic, I was kind of worried that the story would feel too heavy, right? Especially given what people were seeing on the news every day. So my goal was to create a small but interesting cast of characters that people could really relate to. Margot, the protagonist, is sort of maddeningly typical, right? Most people, women especially, I think will be able to understand her various foibles and insecurities. She's, you know, she's worried about her looks. She's worried about her she doubts her intellect. Um, Margot questions her worthiness to become a scientist, to marry her dream man, and to have the life that she really wants. And as the events of the book unfold, we see how she kind of evolves and begins to overcome a lot of her fears to sort of face the bad guys head on. But, you know, at the end of the day, she's also an unreliable narrator. She keeps a lot of secrets, which she sort of parses out to you over the course of this series. You won't really know everything there is to know about Margot until you hit the end of the fourth book. And when I started to think about the terrorists, when we look at the scientists who formed the Scientific Advancement Society, which is the terrorist network in the book, they're sort of classic anti-villains, right? People who do abhorrent things. But on some level, we understand why we do them. We might even sympathize with their grief and disgust at the political situation that spurs them to take action in the first place. So sometimes when I'm out at book fairs or doing live events, people will say to me, are the scientists good or are the scientists bad? And I say, yes.
0: That's a great (laughs) question and a great answer. (laughs)
2: <laughs> and that actually gets uh gets a fair bit of people sort of interested. They wanna they want to be able to see those complex characters and try and understand why they do the things that they do. Um, So, by the time the, the entire story of the sacrificial scientist is spooled out, we see into all of the characters' motivations, and sometimes those motivations are devastating, some of them are enraging, but to me, at least, they all feel very real. So, my goal was to create characters that are resilient and intelligent and obviously brave as hell, whether they're doing good things or bad but they're also kind of snarky and sweary and they somehow manage to keep their tongues firmly planted in their cheeks, even when the situation seems dire. And so I was hoping that the humor and the banter between the characters keeps the tone from becoming oppressive, especially considering, again, that this was written during the pandemic and people could be potentially reading it while the events of real life are sort of unfolding all around them.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I I think you you think you did manage that, actually. There's a lot of good humor in here. Of course, given the events that are happening, a lot of it is sort of a dark humor. But it does keep it from getting too laden down, I think. I felt that way, at least. We'll have to see what, what uh, my, my co-host thinks about that. But this is one of the things I, I tend to like about stories. I mean, we've mentioned it on this podcast many, many times is humor. I love when stories have humor in there. They don't always have to, but to me it helps, especially in a story like this, it helps break up tension uh, and provide some relief that, you know, from events that may be very dark. Uh, So I, I thought you did that well.
2: You know, Margot is the, is very self-deprecating and I think there's a balance there, right? People kind of appreciate some self-deprecation, but you can't really take it too far, or it feels it begins to feel like she's, you know, really <laughs> quite, uh, you know, unconfident in herself. So it's it's a balance you're trying to achieve, yeah.
0: And your co-host clung to the humor like a life preserver in the ocean because this is much more of an intense story than I usually read, and the humor was wonderful. It really helped, just like Mike said, really helped balance out the intensity of the storytelling. And I will say this, we try to be, when we do our interviews with authors, we try not to spoiler too much of the stories because we would really like our listeners to go get the book and read the book and enjoy the book and not have the podcast, you know, ruin the experience for them. But I will say this, the twist was magnificent. Oh, thank you. I loved it. You're welcome. So there you go, listeners. There's a twist and it's worth it. It's a good twist. <laughs> yeah,
1: I wanted I wanted to talk about so much about the end. So I, I I hope I didn't spoil anything because you know it's 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 in your mind, right, when you're when you're thinking back on the story. So hopefully we're we're intriguing people just enough. Uh I had a question about how you categorize this story and market it. Is it It's sort of a, I guess, like for me, I would put it as a sci-fi thriller, I think. Um, Is that how you're positioning it in the market?
2: That's a great question. So I had initially set it when I published, I had initially set it as science fiction and... Upon further review, you know, getting some feedback from readers and things like that, upon further review, I thought, you know, I don't think that it really fits great into the science fiction genre. Um, So I have it categorized now as techno thriller slash medical thriller. And that seems to be doing a little bit better. I think that gives people sort of the proper expectation that there might be some, um, you know, some suspense, some chase, some plot twist, things like that, that you might not normally associate just with the science fiction genre. So that's what I've been doing.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: And speaking of the science, one of the reasons we were excited to have you on the podcast is because as a scientist, you can speak to what it is to use science in science fiction or, you know, your techno thriller, medical thriller, et cetera. And I wanted to hear more about your thoughts on that. Sure. So as an avid reader my entire life, I
2: chewed through an entire catalog of science fiction, horror, and thrillers by the time I was a teenager. But now as a scientist, I've also chosen to be a multi-genre author. But the thread that connects all of my books together is always the same, and it's always with a heavy dose of science. One of the great things about using science and technology is all the ways it can participate in a story or enhance the story. So. Thinking back before I started to write, I kind of, I had kind of gone over in my head some of the books that I had read in my younger years. And so a couple of, so here's a couple of examples. So when you look at something like Margaret Atwood's Orcs and Craig's. Orcs and Craigs, sorry, which was published in 2003. So I think of that book as sort of a soft science fiction, right? It takes place in an obvious future. We don't know exactly when. Um, There's a description of sort of genetically modified hybrid animals, pharmaceutical companies running the world with shadowy surveillance. Artificial intelligence has progressed sufficiently that when the characters are watching video clips, they don't know if they're real or fake. So all of these things are very sort of, the steps that we're on, but a book like that, which I, like I said, I'm kind of calling sort of a soft science fiction, uses science as world building. It's the backdrop that illuminates the circumstances that the snowman finds himself in. And, but the story really at the end of the day is character driven. It's a book about um, two men who fall in love with the same woman, essentially. And so while the science is sort of there, it's sort of very vaguely discussed and, and, um, and it, it just really provides the world-building backdrop. Then, I, then you look at things like hard science fiction, right? So probably the most um, popular example in recent memory is The Martian by Andy Weir, which chronicles an astronaut who's left behind during a Mars mission, and he has to survive on Mars for some period of time until they can come back and retrieve him. And so poor Mark Watney, his character moves from one crisis to the next. He nearly blows up his hab when he has a hydrazine um, explosion. And then he needs to grow potatoes and nutrient-rich soil using his own vacuum-packed excrement and things like that. So science in a book like that is at the forefront. It drives the plot. The science is basically a character in the story. And so sometimes it's helping our protagonist survive. Other times it's throwing up barriers. So after examining some of these examples, I found I kind of had more questions than answers when it came to writing my own book. So I started to kind of develop um, a series of questions that I wanted to ask myself as I sat down at the keyboard every day. And I feel like I've got it sort of narrowed down at this point to four primary questions. How much research do I need to do? Number two, how much detail should I work in? Number three, is it believable? And number four, does anybody care? (laughs) So I'll kind of take these a little bit one by one. So hopefully it'll be clear. So question number one, how much research do I need to do? The amount of research is obviously related to the you know the author's current knowledge of a subject. But with that being said, sometimes authors can get lost down research rabbit holes and then they feel compelled to tell you everything that they learned in their book, which may in many cases is probably unnecessary and can make the story drag. So, even if you are one of those folks lost in minutiae, do your research, take your notes, but understand that all you gained will likely end up being three to four sentences in the final manuscript. So, that's kind of the first author challenge, right? Is to spend your time wisely, getting just what you need out of the research that will propel your plot forward. The second one how much detail? Try to remember that the readers, they want to feel like they understand the science enough to grasp the plot, but won't be applying for a doctorate degree at the end of your novel. With that being said, there are some specific genre differences here, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So for many, that's the second challenge, learning to distill things down to their constituent parts and throttling yourself a bit when it comes to the language and the terms and the jargon that you're using. The third question that I often ask myself is, is it believable? So for the Journal of the Sacrificial Scientist, which is set in the present, the science and the public health response feel plausible and real because they are, and everyone can sort of confirm that any day of the week just by turning on the news. For books set in a far-flung future, however, you might have to learn to extrapolate the relevant science today and tech decades or even centuries beyond what is possible now. To my surprise, I actually found retrograde research to be useful here. So I read articles from 50 years ago about the first test tube babies to see how far we've come with in vitro. Or you could read articles from 70 years ago when the first computers were the size of rooms and putting a man on the moon was just a pipe dream. These can give you clues for the future state of technology, social mores, and importantly, the public responses to innovation. And because we're talking about that, all you have to do is read any article about AI right now and brace yourself for the rampant speculation about all the future consequences that this technology will bring upon us. So use these possibilities, enhance them, make them outsized for storytelling if that's what your genre needs, but do your research. Sometimes we need a little help stoking our imaginations. This might be a great opportunity to create some concept art, drawings, or notes on how you envision today's technology morphing, adapting to the world you're building right now in your head. So that's the third challenge, making your reader see and feel the world you've built and or the technology that you've created as part of your story. Last but not least, does anyone care? In a word, Maybe. Readers of soft sci-fi such as the Margaret Atwood book we discussed already may not sweat the little things. The descriptions of hybrid animals and climate change give the reader a sense of when and where the book takes place and orients them to the idea that something devastating has happened to the human race. But changing some of the small details may not significantly alter the plot. For a personal example, I was in college, um, a molecular biology student, when Jurassic Park came out. My friends delighted in sitting at the lunch table and criticizing every aspect of the movie's science. But did we all go see it? Of course we did. Were we entertained anyway? You bet. Uh, Sometimes the scientific gaps are easily overlooked if the story and characters are unique or memorable enough, and contain dinosaurs. My sense when I talk to readers of sci-fi, military sci-fi, and techno thrillers is quite a different story. Many of these readers relish the realism portrayed in those books. They may be scientists, engineers, weapons experts, or soldiers themselves, and they devour stories that feel authentic to them. These readers can relate to techie books and their protagonists or antagonists precisely because they share a similar knowledge base, mindset, or life experience. For these genres, if you're going to describe a contemporary piece of tech or a weapon, you had better get it right. Even said in the far future, these elements must be rooted in fact. Once those readers stop buying in, it's over. So, I've prattled on now uh, a lot about science fiction and suspense, but what about other genres? Again, that very much depends. I've recently come across a few romance novels wherein the love interests are laboratory scientists. Those readers might not care if the pipettes and beakers are glass or plastic. It's all about the couple's conflict, tension, and eventual resolution. Not really about how many tubes the centrifuge holds. On the other hand, if you're writing something like historical fiction, such as a detective story or police procedural set in 19th century London, those readers might expect that the crime lab portrayed would accurately reflect what was available given the current state of forensic science. The popular novel Lessons in Chemistry, for example, about a female scientist in the 1950s, makes only sort of casual references to science. It's all about the very engaging character of Elizabeth Zott, from her personal foibles to to her treatment by her employer, to her love story with fellow scientist Calvin. So that's the fourth challenge, identifying and satisfying your reader. So in summary, read a ton of your chosen genre. Know your audience. Do your research, but don't let it own you. Reduce jargon. Distill complex points down to its most simple concepts. If you use beta readers, use a mixture of experts and lay people to ensure the appropriate content level. Write a great story and the rest will follow.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. You know, I was, I was thinking about what you said about, you know, doing the research and then recognizing that you don't just dump it all into your story. The uh, space opera science fiction work that I'm currently writing, I have a Development between two governments essentially that will result in something similar to the Berlin Wall. And I've been reading about the Berlin Wall to, you know, see what elements that I might want to include. And so far it's less than two sentences of just a little bit of detail, just to add the depth of what realism, quote unquote, that I'm looking for in a science fiction story. Get the feel that you're looking to get.
2: Uh, In one of the later books in this series, one of the characters travels to a foreign country where I have never been. And so I was initially sort of stymied by the research here, right? How can I sort of make it feel like I understand this place when clearly I've never actually been there? And I found uh, on YouTube actually travel vloggers, that this is all they do is they go to different cities and they make these travel vlogs that they post on YouTube. That So you can see that the signs are posted both in the native language and in English, or you can see some of the architecture of a place, or you can see some of the historical monuments and things like that as these folks are traveling around. And it it did so much more to sort of enhance what I was writing. And I could sort of picture the cobblestone streets and all of that kind of stuff as I was writing in this place that I've never been. So that's another um, really great way to sort of immerse yourself when you're talking about places, especially that 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 you're not really familiar with. So I aggressively Google map. I will... When I'm in a city, um, I spend a lot of time on the mapping and um, and now with these travel vlogs I can also sort of try and help immerse I even something silly as what is the national dish of a place, right? If someone's going to be sitting in a restaurant in a far away in a faraway country, it'd be nice to know that a very traditional lunch would be you know this or that. All of those little details, which don't have to be bludgeoning the reader, hopefully definitely sort of add just that little bit of depth, that little bit of authenticity.
1: That's a good point. Is that you may do a lot of research uh, for a topic, whether it's you know science based or history based or whatever, uh, and you're only presenting you know a tiny tip of that to the reader potentially. Like you said, to add authenticity, to add that little taste that seats you into the world, makes it feel real. And that is also the same, potentially, for people who write fantasy. You may do a ton of creation about the history of your world and the backstory of your characters and the people in it and the magic and all this stuff. But the reader doesn't necessarily want to to be inundated with all of that, right? They want the story. So you use those elements and you trickle them throughout the story to make it feel like a real place, even though you just made it all up. So it still works.
0: And we want to thank author J.L. Birchwood for joining us today and talking about her novel, The Strain Agenda, which is volume one of the four book series the journal of the sacrificial scientist and we will put the link for that book in the show notes thanks again jenny so much for your being here thanks again for having me this was a wonderful chat um i'm so glad i was able to talk to you today thanks a lot so, I just want to thank author J. L. Birchwood again for a fantastic interview talking about her book, "The Blood Strain Agenda," as well as her experiences as a scientist writing science in fiction. Let's talk a little bit about the book. What did you like about this story, Mike?
1: Oh, I liked a lot. right from the beginning, I thought it had a very good pace. It you know catches you and just runs, and I thought it's very voicey too, which is something that a lot of times I think new authors, including me, will struggle with, like, finding finding your voice and letting that flow onto the page and into the words of the characters. I think she did it so well. The story feels very authentic. I, I know I had mentioned that during our discussion with her. She does a lot of things that make the characters feel very real, right? The way that they talk and the way that they interact with each other and a lot of little details you know descriptions and how the characters do things and just enough to really set us into the world and make us feel like we're there with the characters. I loved that. And she does a great job of ramping up the tension and ramping up the stakes through to the end of the story. I thought when 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 I first started reading it I, I wasn't sure what even genre was I reading. Like, is this a science fiction story? Like she said, was that that was how she presented it initially? But very quickly it becomes clear. Okay, this is more of a thriller story with science fiction elements, and it's it sort of reminded me of like the the outbreak. I think it was called the the movie with I think it was Dustin Hoffman in it, right? Where it's like okay,
0: yeah, yeah. There's
1: science fiction going on about a real event, but it's more about the the thriller aspect of it and kind of the build up and the tension with these characters that you're feeling to the end. I liked it. I thought it was very well paced, very fun. Like you had mentioned, I think the humor keeps it from being too dark at times because there's a lot going on that could otherwise make it that way. So yeah, I I enjoyed it. What about you?
0: I was so impressed by the level of tension that pretty much started, well, yeah, it started from moment one. The opening is full of tension. And you're wondering, what is going on? And then you're starting to get a little backstory. And the backstory sort of helps relax a little bit after the first segment. But you still want to know what's going on. So I actually found myself sort of rushing through the backstory to try to get to, okay, but what's happening? Like we talked about in the interview, the humor is consistent. And what I really appreciated was that each character had a very definitive voice you knew who was speaking based on the voice of the character what they were doing they were very well developed characters and compelling characters that you wanted to know what was going on with each of them because there's clearly something going on with each of them right and that was very well done especially for a first novel incredibly well done you know that's that's all i can say it's intense i agree with you well paced as we mentioned in the interview, there's a twist at the end that I did not see coming that I was very impressed by and bl- sort of blown away by. <laughs> so it was, um, yeah, an amazing first novel. Are you going to be reading the rest of the series?
1: Yeah, I think it, like, I want to know what happens. <laughs> right? yeah. You got yes. sure.
0: yeah. to know what happens. I agree with you 100%. So as a writer, what do you take away from... The blood strain agenda and J.L. Birchwood's work on it. Oh,
1: that's a good good question. I think for me it's the thing that you pointed out is setting it up so that it's paced well. You you intrigue the reader from the beginning, right? And then as you build the story up, that doesn't go away. You want to know what's going on, what happens, and keeping that level of tension throughout. It's a tough thing to do. One of the things I wanted to ask her, which I forgot, was about other people reading it, right? Alpha readers, beta readers, things like that. Because it felt like it had a lot of polish to it. um, A lot of, uh, probably a lot of feedback, right? On how to tweak things and how to keep it going. Either that or just she has a great sense of, you know, a great natural sense of pacing and and build up. So yeah, for me, it's, it's, I mean, we mentioned this before with other things too. It's about, Pacing, right? It's about hooking you and carrying you through the end of the story.
0: I agree. That would be my takeaway as well. Really good pacing, consistent character voice so that the characters are recognizable, identifiable, relatable, and driving the story. And I think, as she talked about in the interview, about how it's important to decide whether you're going to have the science drive the story, like in The Martian, or whether you're going to have the characters drive the story, like in the Margaret Atwood novel that she referred to. And here, she definitely has the science there, but the characters are driving the stories, which made it really compelling.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree.
0: Thank you for joining us as we interviewed author J.L. Birchwood and talked about her novel, The Strain Agenda. A big thank you to our Patreon supporters and all our subscribers. We're so grateful for your support and your encouragement. The Stories Told podcast is available on multiple podcast platforms, and we thank you for liking and subscribing or following, depending on where you're listening. It may not be a big deal to you, but it means a lot to us. You can find Michael Grayford at michaelgrayford.com and EW Barnes at 1000Years.com. And those links are in the show notes. Join us next time as we discuss the story told in the Doctor Who Christmas special, The Church on Ruby Road. Thank you so much, Mike. This was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it as well.
0: And we'll see you next time on the Stories Told podcast.